Thanks, Caleb. It's always good to put somebody on the spot, tell them to read 25 verses. At least I didn't give you all 41. Um, All right, let's pray real quick and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for John chapter 9. Thank you for just the chance we have to get together today and study your word. Lord, I pray that we would just leave here today with a better understanding of who you are, better appreciation of the cross. Lord, in your name, amen. All right, so for those who don't know, I work for, I have a day job, if you will, and I work for an investment consulting firm. And like a lot of companies, we have bios, like on the website. If you went to the website, you could kind of see bios for different employees, or if you're responding to proposals, you, you know, you want to know who you're talking about, so they have little bios. And I guess at some point, the bios of the people in our firm were maybe getting a little too self-absorbed or they were talking about their varsity quarterback days, you know, 20 years earlier. And, you know, for some reason they weren't on point. So the marketing team came up with this list of questions that you have to ask. You know, everybody in the entire company had to fill out these answers. And it's like, look, we're going to keep everything on point, make sure everybody get, you know, everything looks the same, everything's uniform. And so they asked questions like, where'd you go to school? And then what's your favorite book? Um, favorite quote, favorite meal, that kind of stuff, favorite movie. And the last question, and I hesitate saying this because some of you are going to think about this the entire sermon, but the last question was name your three ideal dinner guests. Name your three ideal dinner guests. It can be from any point in history. You're not eating with them all at the same time. Just your three ideal dinner guests. And it's harder than you think, but if you ever want to have some great dinner conversation, ask somebody who their three ideal dinner guests would be. And you'll be fascinated by the answers, probably tell you a lot about that person um, as well. But I asked Courtney this week what hers were. And like any good pastor's wife, she said, uh, the Trinity. (laughs) And I was like, I said, so is that three guests or one guest or what? Is, what so I said, pick, pick somebody else. Pick, pick, other, pick something else. So she, I made her pick again, and she said her grandmother, Elizabeth Elliot, and Helen Keller, which I thought were good, other than the last one might be, might be a quiet meal, but I thought they were... <laughs> if you don't know sign language, she knows sign language. If you don't know sign language, I was not making fun. Um, my wife knows sign language. But for the rest of us, it would be a quiet meal. Um, anyway, mine, mine took me quite a while, but I did mine nine months ago, so I can just easily tell you what mine were. Um, my three were Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther, not King Jr., which he'd be fascinating as well, but the one back in the 1500s. And this one will send everybody for a loop, but um, a Viking named Ragnar Lothbrook. <laughs> and, it's not off the Viking show, although you can see him on the Viking show on the History Channel, but he, he's an actual person, supposedly. Um, but it's, I'm fascinated by history. And so, you know, all three of those, um, the Vikings were around the 900s, Martin Luther was around the 1500s, and Abraham Lincoln obviously was in the 1800s. But they all are so very different, and they all give us such a great picture into history of that time and, you know, what was going on. And so I really like that. And I think the reason, one of the reasons I like history now especially, is because growing up, I could never, I could never separate, never figure out how to separate biblical history with world history. 
Like I could never figure out how to get those two together. Like I knew Plato and Aristotle and Socrates were philosophers. But if you asked me to place them into a timeline of King David and Jeremiah and Isaiah and when Jesus walked the earth, I, I, you know, I couldn't do it. I didn't know when they were around. And so you'd hear all these kind of secular, if you will, world history stories. And then, you'd, you know, growing up, you'd read Bible stories. And I, I always just had them separated in my mind. And so the more I studied, the more I could put those two together and say, okay, while Moses was doing this, the Egyptians were doing this. And while this was happening, this was happening. You know, and Aristotle and Socrates and Plato, they were around the quiet period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They were Greek philosophers. So then they started spreading this Greek idea across the known world of the time and so people started speaking Greek and writing Greek and then knowing that you know in a few hundred years when Jesus came to earth that the New Testament would be written in Greek and these philosophers were actually paving the way for everybody in the known world at that time to understand Greek and to be able to read Greek and then the New Testament is written in Greek and so knowing how those two fit together I think is it was really interesting to me at least I don't know if it is to you Um, and I so I started really getting into it and Courtney actually bought me this book I guess probably crossed over into the nerd category, but Courtney bought me this book, and it's it's a timeline book of various. <laughs> it's literally it's a picture book. Ryan, you could read it. Um, <laughs> it literally is a timeline. If I can even get it out of here without breaking it, of world history up top and biblical history underneath, and it just kind of goes through and shows you. I don't know how I'm going to get this off the stage, but. <laughs> It goes through and shows you what happened in the various times. And, you know, one of the things as you study history, I think that is very interesting to me, is it's just shocking how prevalent disease and sickness and ailment and disabilities have been throughout history. You know, it it literally has dominated life from the Garden of Eden. From the Garden of Eden through now, sickness has dominated. And some of these would come in and they would wipe out entire villages, entire countries. You know, some of the worst were the Black Plague, also known as the Bubonic Plague, back I think around 1300s, came in and it was carried by these fleas that were on rats and people didn't know how it was transferred and I guess some soldiers had brought it back. And when it was all said and done, it was a short period, three to four years, 50% of Europe was wiped out. Can you imagine 50% of the United States being wiped out in a five-year period because of a sickness or an ailment or a disease? All right, another one, 1918, there was the Spanish flu, the flu. And by the time it was done, again, same time frame, three to five years, it had wiped out 50 million people. Just the flu. I think with the onset of modern medicine, at least for me, I tend to forget... That, you know, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's full of disease and full of death and full of illness and full of disabilities. And, you know, some, they don't just affect a family, but in some, you know, in some cases they would affect an entire society. And, you know, now we have modern medicine and you don't really think about it until it affects your family. You know, when it affects your family, it's a big deal. You know, that, that sickness, that disability, it consumes you. But, you know, nowadays we just go to the hospital, okay, the flu's not a big deal, you know, measles aren't a big deal, smallpox, you know, those things that historically would just wipe out whole families and societies, those just, you know, they tend not to be a big deal. And so, at the time of Jesus, when Jesus walked the earth, the story we're going to read today, when Jesus walked the earth, those fears of sickness and disabilities and how people with sicknesses and disabilities were treated, 
It's a far cry from what we see today. Okay, so, I mean, if you were born with a disability, you were essentially, like, ostracized. Not only from the temple, but from everyday life. You would just sit on the side on the roadside and you would beg as people went to the temple. And that, that was your life. Okay, turn to John chapter 9 and we're going to read about one of those situations. We're going to see a man born blind from birth. And we're going to get a small glimpse into the compassion of God. The compassion and love of God. All right, John 9, 1. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the passage starts with this phrase, as he passed by. So where's he passing by? You've got to figure out where he's passing by. And if you remember from last week, Jesus was in Jerusalem. And he was at the Feast of Tabernacles. And he told the crowds, I am the light of the world. And this upset the Pharisees. And they get to this heated discussion about what's a lie, what's truth. And he calls them, you know, you're of your father, the devil, the father of lies. And they go back and forth. And then Jesus makes this statement in, I think it's John 8, 31, 32. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And of course, this riles them up and they tell Jesus he has a demon. And then at the very last couple verses of the chapter, he says something that's going to set the tone for this entire next section, all of John 9. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So they said, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus says, the important thing is not that I've seen Abraham, although I have. The important thing is that Abraham saw me and he rejoiced. You have one group of people who sees Jesus. Abraham saw and he rejoiced. And the other group sees Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. They, they hate him. All right, so this infuriated them, and they picked up stones to throw at him, and he slips out of the temple, and as he's leaving the temple is where we pick up in John 9. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the man was almost certainly sitting on this path up to the temple. He would have been begging for alms. Very common for people who had ailments or disabilities to be begging for alms. Part of the Jewish tradition, the law, was taking care of those who were poor. So people would go, and as they're headed into the temple, just, they'd give alms to people who were sitting on the roadside waiting. His disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the prevalent mindset of the day is that those who were disabled or sick, that they had found themselves that way because of sin. All right, now, to be clear, all sickness, all disease... All, any kind of deformities, disabilities, they're there because of sin. That's true. But it's the sin from the Garden of Eden, right? At the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, this world got filled with hurt and devastation and sadness. Now, it's also true that in some cases, some particular cases, somebody might have a particular disease or a disability that can be traced back to a particular sin. I mean, it's feasible you know, if you have an act like a drunk driver and an accident and drunk driver, somebody's disabled because of that, you could trace that back to that person's decision to drink too much, to drive, to get into an... I mean, you can trace some of these things back. Maybe you could trace a particular disease back to a... 
morally questionable lifestyle. Somebody made a bad decision and they're paying the consequences for it now. You know, they have a disease or they have something that's going on in their life and that's maybe because of a bad decision they made. So, I mean, there are, you could argue there are particular situations and diseases and illnesses that are the result of sin. But in the big picture, that's not the way it works. The, the, the things that you see, the, the struggles in life, the devastation, the disabilities, we live in a fallen world. Okay? It's, and it's important for you to know that not every disease or disability is the result of a particular sin. And that's what the disciples are asking. Okay? So, how does that matter to us? Why does that matter to us? That matters to us, 21st century church, because when tragedy strikes your life, your first thought should not be to try and figure out what sin is in your life that God is punishing you for. And that's, that's a very common tendency. Something bad happens, okay, what did I do? What did I do? Why is God trying to spite me now? Or what, what's happening? That, that's not how God works. You know, when you lose your job, you should not think, okay, what, what, what sin did I do where God's trying to get even with me now? Like, what, what happened? That's, that's, not, that's not, I mean, if you're embezzling money from your company and you lose your job, you should ask the question. But... <laughs> Generally speaking, that's not the way God operates. We do not serve a vindictive God. We do not serve a vindictive God. We serve a loving God. And this should be central to everything you believe. But the disciples, they're stuck in this legalistic mindset. So they ask the question. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from earth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Now, here's the picture. Here's the picture of what's painted. All right, we're going to spend a lot of time on these first couple verses, and we're going to fly through the rest. Okay, so here's the picture. Jesus passed by and saw a man blind from birth. Jesus saw a man. The disciples saw sin. That was their question. That was their focus. Jesus saw a man. Disciples saw sin. Jesus had mercy. The disciples saw a problem. Jesus had compassion. The disciples had a question, a theological conundrum, something they wanted to learn, some theology lesson. Jesus saw an opportunity to show love to somebody. Okay, so for you, what's your tendency? When you pass by and you see someone begging at a stoplight, you see a person or do you assume sin? Because that's exactly what's happening here. There's a beggar on the side of the road. All right, when you pass by the people you work with, you're hearing stories of get-togethers and parties and nonsense. You're just, do you see a person? Or do you assume sin? You know, when you see a lady standing on the street corner. Do you see someone who's hurting and needs Jesus? Or do you just see sin? <sighs> can't believe the nerve of somebody to do that. Like, Jesus always looks beyond the sin and pursues the sinner. That's what he does. He looks beyond the sin, and he's pursuing the sinner. He says, it is not that this man sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, here's the reason he's blind. So the works of God might be displayed in him. He's blind for the glory of God. Wrap your mind around that one. He's blind for the glory of God. He's been blind since the day he was born because he was born blind. So that today, all these years later, on this day, the healing powers of Jesus could be put on display. Let that sink in for a second. 
What if you're the blind guy? And there's no doubt he heard the conversation. And here's this man they called Jesus talking with his disciples and they asked him who sinned and, you know, he's probably like, yep, heard that question before. And then all, I mean, there's everybody on the way to the temple probably like, I wonder what he did. I wonder what he did. Well, that's why he's blind. I wonder what he did. He's probably heard it a thousand times. And all of a sudden Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus says, no one sinned. He's blind so that the works of God could be shown through him. Out of all the people on the planet, I chose him this man to be blind from birth, to sit out of the t- outside the temple every single day of his life and beg so that in this moment, as I'm walking by him, I can look over and I can heal him. Like if you try to wrap your mind around that, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's hard to, like you're like, well, what about the guy? What about this? What, like, I, like it, it's just, it's hard to think how a loving God could do that and yet he does you know Courtney and I as most of you know Courtney's been losing her hearing since middle school high school and you know we're getting to the point where the hearing aids she got in middle school high school don't don't work anymore because every time we go to the audiologist her hearing goes down 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 it just keeps going down so we're kind of at the point now where Cochlear implants are the only solution available to help her keep her hearing. You know, and from time to time, we're talking about these next steps and what do we do? And, you know, we're discussing, a lot of times you'll discuss, and we don't say it like this, but it's ultimately what we're saying is we're talking about the sovereignty of God, like how he operates in our lives, how he's in control of our lives. And, you know, we, we talk about the goodness of God in all circumstances, how he's got this. This isn't a surprise to him. Courtney's hearing this is not a surprise to God. He knows this. In fact, he's allowing it to happen. And that's a hard conversation to have. It's a hard to wrap your mind around. And without fail, every time we're discussing it, Courtney will look at me. And this isn't, she'll admit, this is not the way she's always been. Like, in the early days, she was not happy about this. Not that she's happy about it now. But she says, I have no doubt in my mind that my hearing loss, the purpose of my hearing leaving me, going away, and I may not ever hear again, is to bring God glory. And I'm usually like, what? You know, I'm, I'm usually trying to wrap my mind around that. But she's right. God can be glorified in your pain. God can be glorified in your pain, in your heartache, in your disability. And our trust in God and his control in our life speaks volumes to the world who is watching us. It says a lot about what we believe. It says a lot about the God we serve. It says a lot about the trust that we have in him. Because if you ever watch, you know, people I work with, a lot of times something bad happens Nobody's ever coming to me asking me questions when things are going good. Something bad happens, there's a knock on my office door, somebody comes and says, hey, can I talk to you for a second? They shut the door and we have a conversation. Because when things are going good, it's kind of hard to see these things. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Jesus knows every single thing about you. He knows all the hairs on your head, every pain you have, every struggle you're going to face. And one day, you'll be healed. I promise you, one day, you'll be healed. 
It may not be while you're walking this earth. But one day you're going to step into the presence of God and you'll be eternally healed. And we rejo- as believers, we rejoice in that. It's, it's hard to think about. It's hard to wrap your mind about, around. But we rejoice in that. All right, we better move on. Um, then Jesus says something, verse 4. Look at verse 4. Jesus said something to, to the disciples that I think is Creekside. You ever seen Notre Dame football? They put that sign as they run out of the locker room. They hit the sign. You know, I'm thinking we should put it out there and hit it as we leave the church, when we leave the church. But John 9, 4 and 5 says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. We, can, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. Creekside, we can study theology all day. And we should. It's a wonderful thing to study God's word. But night is coming. And our time on this earth, earth is brief. Could be years, could be months, could be weeks, could be days. We have no idea how long we're going to be here. And Jesus looks at his disciples and said, we must work the works. It's a great reminder that God is at work in this world and he's at work in your life. Go back to that verse 4 if you could. We must work the works. He's looking at his disciples and he's saying, we. He doesn't say, go work. He doesn't say, you stay here, I'm going to go work. He says, we must work the works. God is with us every step of the way. And when he resurrected and went into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to accompany us, to comfort us, to lead us, to guide us, to help us in truth. And that's, that's the beauty of this verse. All right, so here's the, here's the reminder. Keep your focus on things that have eternal significance. It's very easy to get distracted. It's very easy to keep your focus here. Jesus says we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night's coming. Verse 6, having said this, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. Now when I read that, I've got so many questions like, why saliva? Why would you spit? Like, why mud? Why did he make mud and put mud on the guy's eyes? He could have just touched his eyes and the guy could have seen. He could have spoke and the guy could have seen. He could have made the guy a new eyeball on the spot right there and exchanged the new one for the old one. I mean, there's a ton of things he could have done, but he reaches down to the dust, he picks up the dust, he spits in it, he rubs it around, and he makes mud. I can only imagine what's going through the guy's mind. It's like, what is happening to my eyes? What are you putting on my eyes? And the disciples are probably like, what is he doing? Like, what's going on there? It's so gross. And then he tells the guy, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Why the pool of Siloam? This is how I read the Bible. Why, why, why this? Why this? Why this? You know, why the pool of Siloam? And here, here's what I think. I think Jesus was testing the man's faith. I mean, it wouldn't have taken any faith on the guy's part for Jesus to say, you're healed. To just say, you can see now. Put mud on, he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Then you'll be able to see. All right, so often, miracles require an act of obedience. You see it all through scripture. They require a leap of faith. They require a step in God's direction. They require a step of obedience. Right? You see God move, you see God do things, it requires you to have faith. It requires you to go after, it requires you to take that step. And this would have been an easy trek for the blind man. All right, I think we have a map of around where this was. There's a temple up top where he probably would have been when begging for alms. Um, and then the pool of Siloam is way down there towards the bottom. So 
This was originally built during King Hezekiah's reign in the Old Testament. And at the time, the Israelites were worried about the Assyrians coming in. The Assyrians were coming in. They would pick people off. They would fight wars. And, and their water supply sat outside of the, of, the, of, the, of the walls of the city. And so what King Hezekiah did is he said, I'm going to build a tunnel from the springs of Gihon over to you know, accumulate water inside the city walls. So if the Assyrians attack us, they can't cut off our water supply. So that's, that's exactly what he did. And it was, so he dug this tunnel. They dug this tunnel under the city wall into Jerusalem. And then the water all pooled up in the pool of Siloam. Okay, and it was called sent because the water was sent from the spring into the pool. So that's why in, those, in John 9 you saw it was also called sent. Okay, so the blind man would have had to descend literally down hundreds of steps to get to the pool. Assuming this was the Feast of Tabernacles, there would have been tens of thousands of people in his way. Blind man, mud in his eyes, walking down, you know, can't see anything. Tens of thousands of people bumping into people constantly. People probably yelling at him, know who he is. Get out of here. Get out of the way. And all he's trying to do is get to the pool of Siloam. That takes faith. That takes a great step of obedience. And I think it's a great reminder for us today. Some of you are waiting on God to do something in your life. I don't know what that is, but you're waiting on God to do something. You're waiting for a miracle. Take a leap of faith. Obey him. When he says go, go. Be obedient every step of the way. One small step of faith can open your eyes and permanently change your life. One small step of faith can permanently change your life. And Jesus wants obedience. So the man goes to the pool, he washed, he came back, see in verse, verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others says, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. So here's neighbors and people who pass him probably every single day on their way to the temple. And they can't figure out whether it's the same guy. I mean, it kind of looks like him. I don't know if it really is him. He looks similar. And the guy's standing right there. He's like, I'm him. This is me. He kept saying, I am the man. You know, they're over there having this conversation about what they're saying, guy. And he's like, hello, it's me. I'm the guy. I and mean, you can picture what's happening here. It, you know, morons, it's me. It's, this is what it is. All right, they're going back and forth. Verse 10. So they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Such a simple act of obedience. This simple act of faith forever changes this guy's life. Jesus tells him to do something, and he does it. And his life is changed. He went, he washed, he sees. You're going to see this over and over and over. The neighbors can't figure out what happens. In verse 13, they take him to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. They use a lot of this language of, can he see, can he not see? This man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they dragged the man back, the blind man, or the formerly blind man, back into the front of the Pharisees. And they say, how did you receive your sight? And he gives this simple phrase. He put mud in my eyes, I washed, I see. So half the Pharisees are baffled that a sinner, they call him a sinner because he doesn't keep the Sabbath in their mind, that a sinner can do these amazing signs. And then the other half is just mad because he broke the Sabbath. 
They don't even care what happened. They don't care that tens of thousands of miracles have been taking place. That doesn't matter. He didn't keep the Sabbath. That's all that matters to them. He didn't keep the Sabbath, according to them. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He didn't have to keep the Sabbath. But according to them, he didn't. All right? And so the other half, they just can't get past that. So verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, who, by the way, is no longer blind. But they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened my eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Now, here's the thing. Look at verse 17. So they said again to the blind man. Now, a lot of times they've been referring to this as the formerly blind man. Now they just say, so they said, the Pharisees said again to the blind man. They see him for what he used to be. That's not who he is. He can see. They still see him as a blind man. They still see him for his past. He's been healed. And they can't get over his past. They can't get over what he used to be. And I think there's probably a good lesson in there for us. It's so easy to look at people who walk into a church and continue to see them as they used to be. It's so easy to look at somebody who's a believer and a follower of Christ and is trying to follow Christ and is pursuing him and we continue to focus on, well, that person used to do this or that person used to do this or somebody's asked forgiveness for a sin or something they've done to you and you can't get over it. I just, I'm never going to get over that, ever. Never going to get over the fact that they did this. I don't care they asked forgiveness. I don't care they've asked forgiveness from God. I'm never, I'm always going to see them as the person who did that. That's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. It says, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, he said he's a prophet. So we know what he's been calling himself. He's been calling himself a prophet. What do you say? The guy says he's a prophet. Jesus told me to wash. I did. And now I see. This guy, you know, in his mind, Jesus is clearly in the line of Elijah, the line of Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah. I mean, this is a prophet of God. No one can do the miracles this man is doing and not be from God. And the Pharisees, they're still blind. They don't believe. And they actually debated in verse 18, they actually debated as to whether or not this man was ever blind to begin with. How dumb is that? They try to have an argument about whether or not he was... The Jews did not believe... This is, where they finally, this is where they have finally come to. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. They said, we don't believe it. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered him, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So his parents obviously knew who healed him. Everybody knew who healed him. Okay? But can you imagine, you know, picture him going down to Siloam, rinsing in the water, washing in the, washing in the pool, and all of a sudden he can see for the first time in his life. Imagine the celebration. Imagine the joy in that. And you, what do you think the first thing he does? Probably goes back to his parents. And I guarantee you there was celebrating, there was hugs. I mean, this is the one thing they've wanted for their son their entire lives. If they could change anything, anything about his life, it would be to give him sight. And he's got his sight. He met Jesus, got his sight, and all of a sudden now the Jews, you know, the, the fear of the Jews is creeping in. The fear of being an outcast 
in society is creeping in. This fear of not fitting in anymore, of being made fun of, is creeping back in. And so they say, ask him. Like, we, we, we know, probably, but we just ask him. He's of age. Okay, and then, I mean, I know they'd seen their son. They'd probably taken him to beg on the streets to the temple. I mean, I, I know the heartache they must have had for their son all these years. They've watched him be ostracized. They've watched him excluded from the temple. Can't participate in certain things. So I get it, but I don't get it. Your son has just received miraculous healing. And they say, ask him, he's of age. So verse 24, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Clearly, since he healed you on the Sabbath, he's a sinner. What do you say? He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Such a simple statement. We could stay on this verse. We could have just preached John 9 and preached that one verse. Though I was blind, now I see. Entire classes have been, have been had at seminaries on this one verse. And this guy's no theologian. He's not speaking theology. He says, look, I, I can't explain it. I was blind, and now I see. So, so simple. And such an incredible picture of what God does in our lives. I was blind and now I see. I can't explain the way he works. I I can't explain the comfort that I feel from his Holy Spirit. I can't explain the mercy he shows, the grace he shows me. All I know is I once was blind and now I see. Like, that's it. Once I was headed down this path of destruction and now I'm headed in a different path. Now I see clearly. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Then he gets a little sarcastic. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? So he's kind of jawing at him now. All right, his parents are deathly afraid. And this guy goes, look, I can see now. I don't care what you guys do. That's all that matters. I can see. 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, speaking of Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered again with some sarcasm. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Basically saying, if this Jesus were a sinner, I'd still be blind. All right, verse 32. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone, anyone, opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So talk about a lesson in biblical history from a man who just encountered Jesus. He says, never since the world began has it ever been known that someone opened the eyes of a man born blind. You say I'm a sinner, you say he's a sinner, I say I'm healed. You say he's not from God, I say he's a prophet because this has never been done before, ever. Okay, and if you think about his statement and kind of mentally walk through the Old Testament, we're not going to walk through the whole Old Testament, he's right. Honestly, there aren't, if you skim through the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, there are not that many examples of healings in the Old Testament. I mean, God is moving. God is working. We see that. The Red Sea is parted. There's the plagues on Egypt when the Israelites are trying to leave. And there's probably less than 10 times in the entire Old Testament where someone is healed. 
Okay, you see in Numbers, the Israelites, when they're bit by snakes, remember they looked at the serpent who's lifted up and they're healed. God does healing there for the Israelites. In 2 Kings, a man named Naaman, who's not even an Israelite. He's like an Assyrian. One of the Assyrians, probably that King Hezekiah built his tunnel from, but he's an Assyrian. And Naaman, he tells him to go wash in the River Jordan, which is kind of very similar to this story. If you go and wash in the River Jordan, Naaman, your leprosy will be healed. So that's another healing. You've got Elisha and Elijah who raised three people from the dead in First and Second Kings. And then Hezekiah, our tunnel guy, he was healed. He prayed and he was healed. He was going to die. He prayed. Isaiah, he's talking to Isaiah and he's given another, I think, 17 years to live. But beyond that, you can read through your entire Old Testament and there's not that many examples of healings. Okay? And... I mean, there's some women who are barren that God opens up their wombs, allows them to have children. All right, but healing, diseases, sickness, disabilities, it's virtually non-existent. And then the cool thing is, in Isaiah, about 800 years before Jesus comes, in Isaiah, Isaiah starts to prophesy, and the prophets start to talk about who's going to come. The Messiah is going to come. The anointed one is going to come. And what's he going to do when he comes? I mean, you can read all through Isaiah, but in verse 18 of this chapter 29, it says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. And then in 35 verse 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then in 42, 6 and 7, it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So this is 800 years, stay with me, this is 800 years before Jesus comes on the scene. They're talking about this Messiah who will open the eyes of the blind, who will unstop the ears of the deaf, because this kind of stuff has not happened. Okay, and then Jesus comes to earth, and even for the first 30 years of his ministry, no miracles that we're aware of. And he starts his ministry, and in a very short amount of time, tens of thousands of miracles happen. Right, You've got you to think about the magnitude and the, and the blindness of the Pharisees. They can count on one hand, maybe two, the number of times they've seen healings or even read about healings happening since the Garden of Eden. And then Jesus comes on the scene and look at the end of John. John 21 says, Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You know how many miracles we have in our Bible? We've got a lot of miracles in our Bible. And this says, If every one of the things that Jesus did were written down, the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. That's a lot of miracles. That's a lot of healings. That's a lot of disabilities. That's a lot of sicknesses. I guarantee you there was not a sick person left in Israel. Maybe there was. We don't know. But, I mean, this is tens of thousands of healings. And there's a handful of healings before that that Jesus comes on the scene. And tens of thousands of people, the blind, their eyes are open. You remember when John is in prison? John the Baptist is in prison. And he's like wondering, man, is this even, is this really the Messiah? Is this the chosen one? And so disciples come and say, hey, John wants to know if you're really the one. And what does he tell them? He says, go tell John that the blind receive their sight and the deaf can hear. And that was was for John to know, you're the one. When we went back to John and said, 
Jesus said the blind receive their sight, the deaf can hear. John would have been like, that's the one. That, that's the Messiah. That's the uh, anointed one. So in John 9.32, he says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So the formerly blind man tries to convince them that the Messiah is here. To no avail. He's trying to help them see with their eyes, that the Messiah is here and they're just digging deeper and deeper into their own ignorance. The roles have reversed, right? Who's the blind one now? The blind guy can see and the Pharisees still can't. Verse 35, as we get closer to the end here, he says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and he found him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. You were once blind, but now you're looking at the Messiah. You can see the Messiah with your own eyes. In verse 38, it says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now, if you, you kind of step back and say, okay, what, what's happened since the beginning of this? Right? Jesus walks out of the temple. He sees a man born blind. He speaks to him. He tells him to go do something. The guy obeys. He goes down to the pool of Siloam. He washes. He receives his sight. Goes back goes back and forth with the Pharisees. Then Jesus finds him, explains to him, look, this is really why you got your sight. I want you to see who I am. I want you to see that I'm the savior of the world. The guy says, I believe. And then he worships. Probably in front of the Pharisees, probably in front of the disciples, he worships. He responds in faith, recognizes Jesus as Lord. How do we know this guy truly believed? Well, besides the fact that he said he believed, how do we really know he believed? He worshiped doesn't just say he said he believed. It says he worshipped. And that's, that's so important because how, how, do we, you know, how do we know if we're followers of Christ? How do we, how do we know? You know, is it because we go to church? Because we read our Bible? Because we pray to prayer? I mean, those are all important things, required things. But do we worship Jesus? Do we love him? Do we obey him? Do we seek him? Do we pray to him? And it's such a contrast. On one side, you've got the Pharisees who are trying to stone him. And on the other side, you've got somebody who's worshiping. It's such a huge contrast. And then verse 39, as the chapter wraps up, it says, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So in this last little section, Jesus clearly states what has been hinted at the entire chapter. Spiritual blindness. Blindness is used all over scripture as this metaphor for spiritual darkness. The inability or unwillingness probably of someone to pursue God and his truth. So the Pharisees were blind. They didn't need anything. They thought they saw clearly. They thought they knew it all. They thought they knew God. But he was standing in front of him, and they didn't see. They were blind. John MacArthur says, Spiritual blindness refuses to admit its blindness and rejects the offer of light and sight. Spiritual blindness refuses to admit its blindness and rejects the offer, offer of light 
in sight. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians, he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So as we close, let me ask you a few questions. For those of you who have never placed your faith in Jesus... Why don't you take that step of faith today? Do that today. Don't let Satan blind you to the lies of this world any longer. Within six months of this story, Jesus would go to the cross. He would hang on the cross for our sins, pay the penalty for our sins. They would pull him off that cross. They would bury him in the ground. And three days later, he would raise from the dead. He'd go to heaven. Send his Holy Spirit to reside in those who follow him. Right? And Satan's only job, his only job on this earth is to blind people from that truth. The, the beauty of a day like today is that for those of you who are here, God is pursuing you. You're here for a reason. It's not by accident. God is pursuing you. And he wants a relationship with you. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, But if we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And for those of you who would consider yourselves followers of Christ, how's your spiritual sight? How's your sight? You know, in a group of this size with this many people I have no doubt that some of you probably feel like you've lost your vision a little clouded you know not, not literally but you used to see clearly the things of God your relationship with him used to be crystal clear you used to walk with him hand in hand daily relationship, daily prayer life spiritual disciplines, I mean it was like man we are like this and your vision maybe has got a little clouded Not, not as fired up as you used to be. Don't have as much passion as you used to have. You used to have vision, but you've lost your eyesight. My prayer for us today as a church is that we would pursue God. You'd get your eyesight back. Repent of your lack of sight and put your focus back on Him. Let's work the works of God while it's light. Let's worship at the feet of Jesus and let's pursue Him with everything we've got. All right, there's a story. Donald Whitney has this book on spiritual disciplines. If you ever want to read a book on spiritual disciplines, it's a good book. Um, but he tells the story in there about this guy who is pursuing, wanting to pursue God with everything he's got. And he tells the story of a guy from Kansas City who was severely injured in an explosion. His face was badly disfigured. He lost his eyesight. And he also lost both hands. So he had no eyesight, had lost both hands. And he had recently became a Christian right before the accident happened. And one of his greatest disappointments was that he could no longer read the Bible. And it says, then he heard about a lady in England who would read Braille with her lips. And so hoping he could do the same, he sent 
some, sent for those books of the Bible in Braille, but he discovered, soon discovered that he couldn't, the nerve endings of his lips had been too badly damaged to distinguish the different characters when he was trying to read. He just, he couldn't do it. And so one day, he like brought that up to his lips and he's praying, he just wishes he could do it. His tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters of the Braille. And he realized that I can read the Bible with my tongue. I can read that Braille with my tongue. And when, when the book is written, by the time this book is written, he said that this guy from Kansas City had read through his Bible four times with his tongue. Like, no eyesight, no hands, and he's reading the Bible with this. I mean, that, that is an amazing pursuit of who God is. An amazing pursuit to want to understand God better, to learn who He is, to help feel His love that can change our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for John chapter 9. Thank you for just a really cool story about a guy who was born blind, Lord, and you miraculously healed him. And Lord, it's just sad that you see stories of the Pharisees and how everything was right in front of them and everything they should have seen, they didn't see. Lord, I thank you for giving us sight. I thank you for saving us. Pray if there's anybody here today who just has never given their lives to you, that they would use today as an opportunity to do that and they would receive spiritual sight. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.